Exodus 34, verses 1 through 11. Adonai said to Moses, Carve for yourself two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write upon them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning. Come up to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come up with you, and do not let anyone be seen throughout the entire mountain. Even the flocks and herds must not graze in front of that mountain. So he carved two tablets of stone like the first. Then Moses rose up early in the morning, went up onto Mount Sinai as Adonai had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Then Adonai descended in the cloud and stood with him there as he called on the name of Adonai. Then Adonai passed before him and proclaimed, Adonai, Adonai, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, showing mercy to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means leaving the guilty unpunished, but bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Then Moses quickly bowed his head down to the earth and worshipped. He said, If now I have found grace in your eyes, my Lord, let my Lord please go within our midst, even though this is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your own inheritance. Then he said, I am cutting a covenant. Before all your people I will do wonders such as have not been done in all the earth or in any nation. All the people you are among will see the work of Adonai, for what I am going to do with you will be awesome. Obey what I am commanding you today. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites before you. Thank you, Kate. That was a wonderfully vivid object lesson leading into the message, of course. Um, just think of what life is like if you had absolutely no sense of direction. Um, some of us are pretty close to that, um, which is why Joy is the navigator in, in the car, um, saying, go this way, this way. Fortunately, we're now blessed with ways that uh, does some of the same things, but um, you know, we, we often have a hard time putting yourself in Moses' shoes. Um, here, God put him in charge of some three million cantankerous folks uh, without a set of blueprints of where he was to go. And you can understand why uh, at this point um, in, in the Exodus story, Moses turns to God and says, uh, now show me your glory. And at, at least initially when I was looking at this, I was thinking to myself, Moses, what on earth are you asking for? Uh, if you recall, when the Torah was given on Mount Sinai, um, it was spectacular. It was out of this world. 
the mountain was covered with uh, blazing fire and uh, the, there was cloud and uh, thunder, lightning, and the blowing of the shofar. It's pretty spectacular, so much so that the people of Israel said, um, we're not interested in getting close. Uh, we're concerned that if we get close, we get snuffed. And um, so that is what I would consider a fairly clear description of God's glory. In other words, uh, what God can do when he pulls out the stops. And uh, so you kind of wonder why Moses is feeling the need for another spectacle. Um, but in essence, what Moses is saying to God, God, I need to see some pretty significant display of your power. If I'm to lead these obnoxious people, um, I need to know that you're with us, that I'm not going out there on uh, blindly and... Um, Give me some kind of display that you're with us. And that's uh, fairly typical when you think about it. Sometimes we um, find ourselves in a need where uh, we need extra pizzazz from God. Have you ever been there? You, uh, you go through life, things get intense, and you feel somewhat dry. And um, you, you long for God to somehow come through, part the clouds, and do something spectacular that is a reminder that he is on the scene. Um, that happened to me very vividly um, a number of years ago. I'm not going to tell you how many years. And uh, Joy and I were visiting in Florida um, in a rabbi's conference, and friends of ours invited us to come to a uh, spectacular set of meetings. Um, it was the days of the Holy Ghost laughter, or so-called Holy Ghost laughter. And uh, we came there, and we're both weary. You know, we felt like God... We need, uh, we need to be recharged. We need to be plugged in and get some extra uh, pizzazz from you. And uh, this place was crowded. I mean, 6,000 people. And uh, it was a spectacle. Um, there were the, uh, uh, the cameras zoomed in on all kinds of people who were busting out all of a sudden laughing and the uh and the minister the the the, the preacher uh emphasized that every so often he would say ah, look at so and so over here he's not what you would expect and he's bursting out laughing and so on and then he invited uh those of us who are in ministry to come up and um, receive prayer and Joy and I came up along with, I don't know, maybe a hundred people or so. And this fellow, the preacher, came and touched people. And uh, 
one after another, people collapsed. And uh, he came to, to me. He touched me, and I'm standing straight. He came to Joy, and she's standing straight. And then he goes to the person on the other side. They fall, and they continue to fall, and they continue to fall. And uh, as you can imagine, we were looking at the spectacle and saying, uh, what's up with this? Um, is something wrong with us? Uh, how come all the other uh, 5,900 and some people are uh, swaying and, and swinging and so on, and we're standing still? And, uh, you know, afterwards, and in retrospect of many years, I realized it really wasn't my place to sit in judgment um, on the preacher and on those who were participating in all of that. That's God's business. Uh, last time I checked, he is the righteous judge. I'm not, right? Um, however, I came away with a very basic um, conviction that for most of us, most of the time, God is not interested in putting on a spectacle. Um, human nature being what it is has the attitude of, God, uh, make me a miracle already. Uh, I need to see your power. I need to see that you're alive and well. Uh, I need to be recharged. And underneath all that is the attitude that says, God, uh, Inquiring minds need to know. Um, I need to see something that tells me that you're alive and well. And uh, it's a basic human desire, uh, true of all of us to one extent or another. And what I find intriguing here is that of all people, uh, God would say to Moses, Moses, you're right. I will show you my glory. Um, and by the way, in, in Scripture, um, the glory of God is usually described in, in language that is indescribable. Uh, it typically refers to uh, God being uh, arrayed in uh, precious diamond and jewels. Uh, and there are a couple of places that come to mind. I'll just read it to you briefly. Um, in, in Revelation, we see that John has a vision of God uh, sitting on a throne, and uh, he sees God, and what he sees is, again, indescribable. Uh, chapter 4 of Revelation, at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. So in other words, you have absolutely no clue what the person sitting on the throne looked like, obviously referring to God, other than um, everything about him is described in the language of precious jewels and precious diamonds. Uh, even in Exodus itself, earlier, um, Moses, Aaron, uh, the elders go up. This is part of the um, establishment of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, 
and they see the God of Israel, and under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire clear as the sky itself. And you say, okay, exactly what that looked like. Absolutely no clue, other than to realize that there is a reason why the presence of God, the glory of God, is described in terms of precious diamonds, precious jewels. Why? It is designed to say to us that the presence of God is indescribably precious, more precious than anything that you and I have. Um, it's hard for us to get our arms around that because for us, everything else fills the screen. You know, you get up in the morning, you had a good night or a bad night, uh, you're struggling to get some coffee into your veins and get, get on with life, uh, God is not filling your screen at that point and typically um, not much for the rest of the day because you've got places to go, you have appointments and people to see, etc., etc., and to say that God is indescribably precious to us is a stretch, to say the least, isn't it? And so Moses is, again, he's no spring chicken at this point, uh, 80 years old plus, and he's been given this, what seems like an impossible task to take these people into a very difficult, on a very difficult mission. And he says, God, show me your glory. Show me what you can do. And you could be justified in being in, in his shoes and saying, yes, God, show me your glory. And all of us, when we're confronted with situations and tasks that are impossible, uh, where we don't have the power to get things done and we feel like the, the tasks, the jobs are way out there. Uh, we want some kind of assurance from God that he has what it takes and we would be inclined to say, God, show me your glory. And God's response to Moses is no. No, I'm not interested in showing you my glory at this particular point. I will cause all my goodness. This is uh, earlier in chapter 33 here in Exodus. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And you want to say, okay, God, uh, are we talking semantics here? Uh, why is glory not okay, but goodness, yes, okay? Um, a very strange language when you stop and think about it. Um, I will pass, uh, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And you say, what? Because in Scripture, over and over and over and over again, people call on the Lord when they need something. And for God to say, I'm going to call upon the name of the Lord, kind of strange language for us um, but simply I believe what, what God is saying here is you don't need to see my power 
You need to have a fresh dose of who I am, my character. And no, you don't need the pizzazz and the glory and so on right this minute. You need to know who I am. Why? So that you can be in tune with who I am, so that you can do what it is I put before you. God came down in verse 5, chapter 34. God came down in a cloud and stood with Moses. And the Hebrew word for came down is a military term uh, com coming from a, uh, the notion of you stand in formation. God is saying, I'm going to come down and present myself to you um, in a cloud. Now, you may or may not be aware of it, but if you are somewhat like me, you will be aware of the fact that the cloud is mentioned 50 times in the Torah. That's a lot of times when a cloud, not meteorological cloud, but a cloud in the sense of the presence of God is presented uh, in Scripture. First of all, to the nation of Israel, is how God presented himself is in the form of a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, but also specifically uh, as part of his relationship with Moses. And most of the time, it was something that the human eye could visualize and understand and relate to. Um, but there were times when the cloud, the presence of God was... Uh, beyond people's ability to get their arms around. Uh, you see that, for example, when the tabernacle and the temple were dedicated um, at the end of Exodus, the cloud covered the tent of the meeting. This is chapter 40, verse 34. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Um, what was different from that situation? You had the cloud in the presence of God, but something was spectacular. But much of the time, God presents himself in a way that you and I can understand. Think about it. Um, God is so much infinitely beyond us that there's really no way we can even understand him because he's a mystery. And yes, we use all kinds of language to try and explain who God is. And then God helps us out by using human language. He speaks about the face of God, the hand of God, the back of God, um, all of that in order to help us understand just who God is. Why? So that we can relate to him. and understand who he is and learn to follow and be responsive to him. So coming back to what God is saying to Moses, um, I will come down. There's a special place. And I want you to stand with me, near me, in this specific location. This is... Uh, Exodus 34, verse um, 
verse 5. There's a special place, and I want you to stand with me. What is special? What is unique about that? Well, somehow on that piece of mountain, God carved a place for himself. Um, now, again, this is one of these mind-boggling issues because God is everywhere, and yet somehow he associates himself with specific places. Jerusalem being the most obvious one. The temple is another one. And here at Yeshua Zion, in this place in the basement of Greenwood Community Church, God sees fit to come and hang out with us. And I hope that part of your experience is that you have a special place in your life where you know God comes and hangs out with you on an ongoing basis. I'm not going to stand here and say that every single day at 6.15 you expect God to show up and he always does. But he comes. This is the, the notion, the mystery of how God relates to us uh, through special places, sacred places, and sacred times. And apparently there was something like that for Moses and God. Back in chapter 33, the Lord said, There is a place near me or with me where I want you to come and stand by the rock. And when my glory comes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Now, we can look at that and parse it out and unpack it until the cows come home and really never understand exactly what that means. And I don't pretend to tell you. We'll know when we see the Lord. But apparently, what's taking place is Moses stands on a rock somewhere, part of Mount Sinai formation, and God, God's presence descends in a cloud formation. And somehow God grabs Moses and puts him in a fissure or in a hole in this rock formation and then zaps in front of him and proclaiming all these attributes about who he is. And then Moses is able to, to open his eyes and see the outlines of God's glory, God's the spectacle of God's brilliant formation passing by. Now again, this is mind-boggling, um, but part of the message is you are not physically and spiritually capable of looking and seeing my glory. I mean, the closest thing I can think of is the notion of standing and staring up at the sun for more than a couple of minutes. Afterwards, our um, eyes just go bazooey. Um, and this is part of the picture. God's glory, God's uh, spectacular appearance is so much beyond us. There's absolutely no way that we can see it. 
But yet the message is God isn't interested in being out there, only out there, transcendent beyond us. He wants to be imminent. He wants to walk with us. And that's what God is saying here to, through Moses. Yes, I want you to see a, um, a portion, but the bigger issue here is that I want you to understand who I am. And when you think about it, folks, there's a part of us that, that want this spectacle. I, I'm, I can't speak for everybody else, but I've been there. Uh, there are times when I want God to show up and do some spectacular things. Uh, which, of course, he's capable. And you hear all kinds of stories from places around the world where God uh, shows up and people are healed and even to the extent of uh, dead people are raised and et cetera, et cetera. Do I discount that? No, absolutely not. But it is according to God's calendar, according to God's timetable, and he does what he does as he sees fit. The rest of the time for us to say, God, I want a spectacle today because I'm uh, weary and I'm discouraged and you have to give me something to show me that you are around and you care. And God's attitude is, no, I'm not going to do that. I want you to know who I am. And by the way, what God reveals to us in those special particular moments is not going to be something new and wild and exciting that has nothing to do with what we have learned before. If it is really something that comes from God, it is going to be consistent with what we've seen elsewhere. And here... God passes in front of him and um, recite some basic characteristics. And by the way, traditional Judaism refers to this as the 13 attributes. And like the dear sages are inclined to do, they pick everything apart um, and stretch it every which way but loose. Um, you really have to work hard to get 13 attributes here. Um, and, and you may be aware of the fact that those 13 attributes are part of the, uh, the special penitential prayers, the slichot that are prayed before Rosh Hashanah and on other special occasions. Um, and what is also special is the fact that what we see here appears in all kinds of different ways throughout Scripture. Why? Because what the Word of God what God reveals about himself is absorbed by men and women of God throughout Scripture, and they live it and they speak it. So if you were here at the um, Yom Kippur, at the Kol Nidrei service, you may remember that I spoke about Psalm 51, where David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love according to your great compassion. You want to say, David, where did you get that? Well, right from here. 
The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. As I've often mentioned, what God presents himself is not, um, I'm an angry God, uh, you follow what I have to say or else I'm going to nuke you. That's definitely not what is presented, folks. What God presents himself here and throughout scripture is the basic reality that who he is is about mercy and grace and compassion. James, we see th that the word of God tells us that God is, that the God's mercy trumps judgment and justice. In other words, if God had to choose between judgment and between mercy, he would always go for mercy. Definitely not where we come from, where we look at someone who uh, is a crook, a, sc a scoundrel, a murderer, we say, ah, they got what they deserve. We have absolutely no ounce of mercy or compassion. Uh, we feel like we know what justice is all about. We think we know what justice is all about. Adonai, Adonai, the four-letter uh, name of God, the tetragrammaton, yod hey vav hey, um, refers to God's eternal nature. If you remember when Moses said to, to God, God, by the way, when I go to talk to the people, who should I tell them sent me? Um, in Egypt, they had a zillion different gods. And should I tell them that uh, you are not Ra, uh, the sun god, uh, and the Lord said, which means I will be that I will be, or I am that I am, obviously referring to God's eternal nature. He's around. He's always been around, always will be, and that's what Adonai, Adonai is about, the four-letter name of God. Moses, remember that I'm here. Um, El is fairly generic word for God. Uh, it's used here to uh, connect with God's attributes. Compassionate. By the way, that comes, rachum, it comes from a Hebrew word for, uh, for the womb. Uh, we don't usually think about God in feminine attributes, uh, but that's part of God's softness that he wants to present to mankind. He is merciful, meaning he is favorably disposed. You know, it's not like you and I, you look at somebody uh, who's giving us questionable attitude, and depending on our day and uh, whether we have slept well and are feeling good, we may or may not be favorably disposed. What scripture says is God is always favorably disposed. Which means when you come to him and you seek his help and mercy, you know he's not going to look at you and say, shoo fly, get out of here, beat it. I have other things to do. I, I have uh, six billion people to take care of and who are you? He is merciful. He's slow to anger and the Hebrew expression here is very vivid. Hebrew, by the way, as you may know, 
is very graphic. Uh, and this literally has a sense that he is slow in the nostrils. I don't know if you've seen someone who, who gets really hot, furious, and, and, and their lip quiver and their nose starts to uh, do funny things. Um, so God is not like that. He is erechapaim. He is always slow to anger. Just put yourself in God's shoes at that point. Are you slow to anger? He's full of grace, loving kindness, compassion, and truth. By the way, truth and met is not some kind of uh, philosophical quantity like truth and beauty. Truth, obviously, scripturally, refers to integrity, trustworthiness, and in our case, transparency. That's who God is. He's compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, full of grace and truth. By implication, folks, if you and I are going to be like him, those are the qualities we want to absorb and, and strive towards. He forgives. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, sin. That's a big one, folks. In all the years that I've been in ministry, over and over and over and over and over again, I see that, that, that this is where people break their teeth. God says, forgive, and we say, forget it. I'm not going to forgive. So-and-so has done me dirt. Um, they'll never change. Um, yeah, the Bible says I'm supposed to forgive, but I will forgive them in 10, 15, 20, 30 years. God forgives. And it's I, I find it hugely uh, interesting and exciting that he gives three different words for sin. Avon has to do with wickedness, or just being uh, crooked. You know, God gives you the, the path, and you say, no, God, I'm going to go this way. Pesha is out and out rebellion, where God says, I want you to do such and such, and we say, no, God, I have a better way. And chet is the notion of missing a mark. You know, God puts a bullseye here and your arrow misses the mark and goes all the way over there. So what this says is that God is willing and able to forgive all kinds of, all categories of sin. Think about it, folks. That's who he is. And at the same time, he is not going to offer cheap grace. He's not going to say, you have a free ride. You can do whatever it is you feel like. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. He will visit the sin of the fathers to the to their sons, to their grandsons, to the third and fourth generation. And I want to park here for a minute because you 
may have heard people talking about generational curse. That something that someone does goes on to their kids and their grandkids and so on. By the way, the Bible does not teach generational curse. Uh, generational influence, definitely. Uh, because what it is that you and I do uh, definitely impacts people around us, including kids, including grandkids. But as Rabbi David pointed out last Shabbat from Ezekiel chapter 18, God says every person who acts and sins is responsible for his sin. And third and fourth generation of those who are opposed to me. That, by the way, is what uh, Exodus 20, the, the Ten Commandments, tell us. God's judgment will continue to those who say, you know, just like my father, I don't care about God. However, we need to remember that he maintains love to thousands, literally thousands of generations. Now, if, if you do the math here, you'll see that the proportions are, are hugely skewed towards God's mercy for those who love him. A generation typically is, is 40 years in, in biblical chronology. Thousand generation, what is that, 40,000 years? God's mercy continues that long. And God's judgment comes for three and four generations to those who hate him. And God reveals all of that to Moses. Why? Well, first of all, Moses needs to know. And Moses needs to be able to convey that information to the people around him. And you think about the application for us, the implication for us, is that we often have such perverted notions of who God is. Because for one reason or another, we trans transfer all kinds of stuff from other people onto God. Uh, particularly father issues. And I'm a father, I don't mean to slam fathers. But particularly father issues or parent issues, where we experience a great deal of negative uh, judgment and, and all kinds of um, lack of grace from our earthly parents and we imply, suggest that that is who God is. And we refuse to take God's word for, for what it is and say, God, regardless of what I have experienced, in times past, from this person, from that person, you are significantly different. And take what the Word of God says here and embrace it, that he is compassionate, he is merciful, slow to anger, full of chesed, loving kindness, and truth. And say, God, this is how I want to be. And no, I don't want pizzazz, I don't want spectacles, I want the ability, the power from your spirit to be able to be like you. So yes, show me your goodness. Show me what it's like 
to, to be who you are and allow me and teach me how to follow. Let's pray. Father God, we bless your name. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you're compassionate, merciful, full of grace and truth. Thank you, Lord, that you provide the power, the ability, Lord, for us to be likewise. I pray, Lord God, for each one of us where we have embraced lies about who you are and consequently lies about who we are. We pray, Lord God, that your Ruach will lead us into all truth today, cause us, Lord God, to know who you are and learn to walk in those ways, Lord. Transform us into your image, we pray in the name of Yeshua. Amen.